Amen. Thank you, choir. The baby in the manger is a beautiful thing. You know, we've had a bunch of funerals here lately. It's good to be in the house of the Lord and talk about the birth of a Savior and some good news of great joy uh, to celebrate together. It's the most wonderful time of year. I hope you and your family are enjoying this Advent season and prepared for a wonderful Christmas time. I hope you'll join us tomorrow night at five o'clock for a, a really special and sacred worship time with candlelight and communion as we celebrate the Advent of Christ. Uh, today, it's good to be back in the pulpit. I haven't done this in, I think, three weeks, so it's nice to be able to, to preach again on Sunday morning here with you all after having wonderful music. I'm, again, I'm so glad that we have a church that uh, is able to, to bring in an orchestra and have the choir with, you know, almost 50 singers uh, bringing the Christmas music, and then that they would allow us to say, uh, hey, like, what if we tried this new thing with these guitars and the band, and everybody said, cool, go for it, and that was wonderful, so thank you for being so accommodating and flexible and open to new things. It's a sign of a healthy church, by the way, so I hope you'll always be up for doing some new things, something like a 52-part sermon series in the Gospel of John. Some of you have said how excited you are. Some of you are freaking out a little bit. That's okay. Uh, it's going to be okay, I'm convinced, as we walk through the Gospel of John together. This, by the way, is part two of the I guess it's only 50 weeks now since we had the Christmas music for those two weeks, so a 50-part sermon series now. And someone gave me this little uh, journal. If you want to go to esv.org, you can order it. I think it's like seven or eight bucks. It's not much, but it's the, the Gospel of John, the text from the ESV that I'm reading from, and then it has uh, room for you to make notes. Uh, you can date it and make little notes on the other columns, so it's a great little resource. If you go to esv.org, order, you know, 100 for your, your friends and your, your class, whatever. Uh, it's a really good resource. Thank you to uh, the Wallaces for getting me that little gift. It's been a wonderful Advent season uh, so far. I really have enjoyed the time with my family, and even in the midst of funerals. It's been uh, neat to see how the Lord has worked and moved in our church and in my family and in um, just our, the, the families that are grieving, but also joyfully expecting the resurrection, uh, remembering that Jesus came to earth not only to be born as the Savior of the world, but to die an atoning death uh, on the cross for us, and then to rise again, conquering death forever at Easter. And that's where we're headed, but it all starts with Advent. Uh, in the last sermon on John that I did that was only three weeks ago, it feels like forever ago, we, we just dove in to chapter 1, verse 1, as we began this amazing book, what's called the profoundest writing ever uh, composed, the Gospel of John. We saw how in the first five verses that John begins to lay the foundation for the rest of this book, the prologue of chapter 1 is kind of the, the foyer uh, for the, the rest of what we're going to be studying in John, but it's a perfect Advent text, because it talks about the coming of the light of the world. And in those first five verses, John begins at the absolute starting point for Jesus, which is not at Christmas. That's not where Jesus began, but before all time, before all creation, Jesus has eternally pre-existed along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The prophet Micah prophesied about the Messiah 700 years before the actual arrival of Jesus, 
he told that the, the one who would come to rescue his people would come from the town of Bethlehem. We knew that he was coming from the city of David. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The origins of Jesus are from ancient days, from of old. The story of Jesus doesn't begin at Christmas. Jesus' coming forth, his beginning is from of old, from the ancient days before all time. That's why we can trust him completely. That was the message from three weeks ago, just a refresher. So now that we have the starting point in place, the foundations laid, we move on now to the ministry of John the Baptist, who the one who pointed to the true light of the world. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word this morning, as I read our text from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. We're making progress through the gospel of John as we read these next seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen? <laughs> who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, light is a, a central theme during Advent. We know that Advent begins in darkness. The 400 years before Jesus showed up, there was pretty much silence from the Lord. There were no prophets that spoke after Malachi. But when's the darkest time? It's always before the dawn. So these candles remind us that light is coming into the world. And that's what we see in this text here. Light is one of the most central things that we see every Christmas as a theme for Advent. And the darkness represents the brokenness and the frailty of our world. We're keenly aware of that. Like I said, we've had a, a rash of, of funerals and deaths here in our church. So we begin to light these candles throughout this season to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. The sermon from the, the last time, December 2nd, the first Sunday of Advent, ended with Verses 4 and 5, if you look in your Bibles at verse 4 and 5, it says, In Him, in Christ, in, in the eternal Logos, the preexistent Word, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a beautiful, hopeful verse. And later in John chapter 8, verse 12, we'll see where Jesus is telling a group of Pharisees, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I, I, I love the Advent graphic that Andy came up with for this season. Put that, there it is. 
the, the light is emanating not down on the manger like you see sometime, but it's, it's coming from the manger because Jesus is the light of the world. He's the source of the light. And light's a really interesting phenomenon. I, I hear Scott Collier could explain this a lot better than I could. I know Marcus Voller could as a spectroscopist. Is that how you say that? I, spectroscopy, that's a really hard word for me to say. But light is a, a scientifically fascinating phenomenon. Just in the last, like, 200 years or so, scientists have been blown away by what they've discovered about the way light behaves uh, I know we, we do have a lot of other PhD scientists, Marcus and Scott and others, who could talk about this in more detail, but what, what I understand in my limited right brain kind of understanding is that they've discovered that light behaves in ways that can't be explained by classic physics, by what we used to understand as what, how things behave. Light defies those things. It acts like both particles, because particles behave in one way, and it also behaves as waves, like sound or something. It behaves both as particles and waves, which doesn't fit into any of our old categories. It's, uh, there's a whole mostly theoretical branch of science now called quantum mechanics that is really predicated on this idea that light defies what we used to know about physics, so now we have to come up with something new to understand quantum mechanics. Jesus Christ, as the true light of the world, defies any categories. He blows away all of our old expectations in the way that we used to understand how things worked. He defies all the explanations that we would place on him other than what he says about himself. He said he was 100% God and yet 100% human at the same time. He was without sin and yet he was crucified as a common criminal. Our experience of Christ cannot be limited to what we understand. It can't be limited to just our intellectual capacity to take him in. So light is the perfect metaphor for Christ. Christ illumines reality. He exposes truth. Christ gives life to everything he touches, just like the sunlight does. He shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome him. He brings warmth and healing to, to everything that he touches. To cold and weary places, he shines. He purifies and cleanses. They say that the best disinfectant is sunlight. Well, Christ is the best for removing the dirty, moldy, broken parts of our world. Jesus is the light, not us. We need to remember that. I distinctly remember when I was in elementary school, the first time I learned that the moon doesn't actually shine, right? The moon just reflects. I remember I was probably about Jude's age, probably second or third grade or something, thinking, what? I thought the moon, you know, actually shone at night. It just blew me away that the moon was still, even in the, in the darkness, was reflecting the light that the sun gave because the sun is the source of all light in our universe, now, that blew me away. The best we can do, since we are not the light, is to allow the true light to shine on us and then to reflect that light into the rest of the world, much as the moon does. 
Neither was John the Baptist the light either. Look at verse 6 again. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. We know this is not John the, the evangelist who's talking about himself here. He doesn't talk about himself as John. He's talking about John the Baptist. To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. You know, I have friends who are, are also pastors, and they're preaching from the lectionary text during Advent season. And the lectionary text for this season are based in Luke chapter 3 about John the Baptist's ministry because Advent is a time to prepare for the coming of the Lord, and that was the ministry that John the Baptist had been given by God. His role was to prophetically lay the foundation to prepare the way for the Messiah to enter in. Because we know that Advent is not the same thing as Christmas, right? <laughs> Advent is a season of anticipation and waiting and longing. There's only two good Advent songs, really, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that Nate played it as our prelude this morning, and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, such rich, beautiful Advent songs. But Advent is a season about waiting, expectantly eager for the Savior to show up. We're re reminded of this anticipation at my house in the last few days when my kids and maybe my wife even wants to open a present or two. We have to say, no, we're in a season of anticipation. You have to wait until Christmas to open the gifts. So the lectionary passages from the New Testament, like I said, focus on John the Baptist, the one who fulfilled the, the scriptural role of pre preparation for the Lord. He was the forerunner. He's called John the forerunner because his ministry came first. He fulfilled God's calling on his life to serve as the moon to the Son of God, to reflect the light of Christ into the world that was a dark world. And, and John actually developed a large following of of Jewish disciples who, who came out to the wilderness seeking not the old religious laws, not the old religious rules of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. They, they flocked out to the desert to, to, to see this wild man who wore clothes made of camel hair and who ate locusts and honey because what he was preaching was a message of truth, was a message of repentance, a message to prepare your hearts, to be baptized for preparation for the one that would come, the Messiah, the perfect spotless lamb of God. Out in the wilderness, this strange man was acting with a prophetic urgency that resonated with the people as if something big was about to happen because it was about to happen. Verse nine is one of the greatest Advent verses of all time. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What a great verse of anticipation, of preparation. John the Baptist told the people who were tired of these empty ceremonies, this empty religious ritual, he said, stop pretending to be okay. Stop acting as if you have it all together. Stop believing that just because you, you put the blood of a, a goat on the altar that your sins are somehow forgiven because of the act of sacrifice that you made. He said, you need rescue. And I have good news. The rescuer is coming. So get your hearts ready for him. 
all your darkness is about to get blown away by the true light of the world who's coming. And the Greek word that John uses here for true, the true light of the world, it doesn't mean like correct. It doesn't mean like, it doesn't have to do with veracity so much as authenticity. The word means genuine, like the real light, the actual light that shows the truth to everyone was coming into the world. The the prophets in the Old Testament foretold of a day when the Messiah would come as a light to all the people. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. You know this familiar passage. We hear it sung in the Messiah, and it's a familiar uh, Advent text about the Messiah who would come from the prophet Isaiah. In verse 2, the prophet tells us the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And what would this great light be like? A a great and wise prophet king who would be mighty and who would unite all the kingdoms of the earth in a, a, a worldwide political structural kingdom? No, a few verses later, Isaiah tells us that the light would come in the form of a baby, the baby boy that we just heard Kelly sing about. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's a boy. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So how was the the great light of the world received? When it came into the world, how did people receive that light? John tells us in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is a shocking verse on, on many levels. First, it says that the Logos, the eternal preexistent Word of God who was with God and who was God, was in the world. That's a huge deal. God condescended to us and broke into our reality. He did not abandon us. He didn't leave us to figure out our sin problem on our own. But He showed up in our world to get us out of this sinking boat of sin. Yes, and then it says this world that was made through him, he showed up into it. The word of God, the logos, by which all creation was spoken into existence. Remember Genesis 1, let there be light. How did God do that? Through his word. The the agent and goal of all creation, Jesus Christ, entered into the world that he himself created. That's huge. It's like when we find out, I know a lot of you haven't seen it, but if you have small kids like me, then you've seen the Lego movie. At the end of the Lego movie, we we find out that the, the kid who built the whole thing, that he enters into it, that he's the mastermind behind it all. He's the architect of the whole universe that he has built, and he shows up in it. People should should flock to the master behind it all. They should 
know that he's sovereign over all of it, that he's the one who designed everything in which they are a part of. But what happens with Jesus? Look at the next verse, verse 11, or even the last part of verse 10. Yet the world did not know him. How could that be? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You know, I had the, the, the privilege yesterday of, of bringing a message at the funeral service of Ralph Stone. Ralph Stone was a member of our church for 52 years, I believe, and he was a consummate professional. He was the boss who hired David Gregory many years ago. He hired a, a bunch of pharmacists and made these, you know, pharmacists out of these guys who is now the dean of school of Belmont, you know, the dean of school of pharmacy at Belmont. And Ralph was a very well-spoken, educated, very professional guy. But I found out yesterday that he was raised on a farm in Lynchburg, Tennessee in the 20s without electricity. Electricity didn't come to that part of Tennessee until the New Deal in the late 30s in the part of the Works Progress Administration. So he grew up without any kind of radio, any kind of outside contact. I mean, I, I know some people that grew up, you know, without like phones or something, but without electricity? That's, that's amazing. He was poor. They had to grow what they ate with his family. They didn't have plumbing or anything. And when he was 18, he finally said to his parents, I want to go to college. And his dad said, no, no, we need you here. You need to work the farm. So for four more years until he was 22, he worked hard on that farm. And, and in poverty, they literally scraped to survive. And then finally, at the age of 22, he went to Tennessee Tech and he showed up in, you know, the big city of Cookville. And, and he was unsophisticated. He was a farm boy. And he met people from Nashville and from Memphis and from Knoxville and Chattanooga and all these sophisticated people that he became friends with. And he was brilliant. He did well in school. And he started to make these, these cool friends. Imagine if Ralph's parents had left the farm in Lynchburg to come visit him one weekend. And they show up on campus in the clothes that they'd made themselves that were ratty and worn out. And, and they're dirty because they can't clean up properly and, and, and they just show up in the best they have, which is nothing. And, and imagine if Ralph, in his disdain for the poverty of his parents, when they come up to him and his dad says, Ralph, it's us, your father and mother, we've come to visit you. Imagine Ralph saying, I don't know these people, this guy must be crazy. He would never do that. Ralph's a sweet guy. I'm sure he would never disown his parents. But that's essentially what we see in this text here. Jesus comes to his own, his own people, the, the nation of Israel as their Messiah. Remember, he's the king of Israel, not just the king of the world. And they reject him. They say, we don't know you. In fact, we're embarrassed by you. And they eventually killed him on a cross. In his lowly estate, the poor son of a carpenter from Nazareth of Galilee, the, the Jewish population didn't acknowledge that their long-awaited Messiah had shown up in the form of this carpenter. And the reality was that he was better than they ever could have possibly imagined. The prophets didn't even do justice to how great the Messiah actually was in reality because he was God in the flesh. He was the perfect, spotless lamb come to take away the sins of the world but they did not receive him. I love this commentary by Kent Hughes on John. He says that Jesus was rejected by those who would have been incinerated had he not veiled his glory in flesh. 
They would have been vaporized because God showed up, but he veiled his glory in humility and in condescension to them so they wouldn't be turned to dust. He was rejected by those whom he spoke into existence with his word. Those for whom for thousands of years he had been preparing the way. It's tragic, isn't it? It's heartbreaking, and it remains just as heartbreaking today to think about those who reject the light of Christ, the reality of the Messiah who has come to rescue them, those who prefer to live in darkness when God gives them an invitation to run into his marvelous light. But not everyone rejected Jesus. It ends with amazing gospel message in verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. We're going to see with Nicodemus in chapter 3, this idea of being born again. But as amazing as it is that God condescended to us and entered into our world, which he created, it's even more amazing that he now, through Christ, allows us to become part of his sacred family. That, that you and I, in our fallen flesh, can become his children. You know, it's one thing to, to be you know, a citizen of the kingdom and get the benefits of being a citizen. That would be amazing. That's what the Jewish people were looking forward to. But what John says, it's, it's even better than that. We get the benefits of being a child of the king. We get to be co-heirs with the Messiah, inheriting everything that the Messiah gets becomes ours as well as we become co-heirs of Jesus Christ. Christ gave us the right to become adopted as his brothers and sisters. We can call God Father now, not just Father, but Abba, Daddy, just like Jesus does. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul marvels at this mystery. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because we're children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, the scandal of the incarnation is not that our raggedy, Nazarite, poor carpenter came to, to, to embarrass us. The scandal of the incarnation is that the mastermind behind it all, the architect of this universe, has shown up to rescue us as only he can. Because of Jesus, we can now have the amazing privilege of running to our Holy Father and knowing that he will embrace us with arms open wide as our Father because of what Jesus has done for us. So let me just give you three takeaways here that are important for us to remember from this passage this morning as we talk about light. You know, light causes us to see things as they are. I, I love that we have flashlights on our phones now. I can't imagine, 
you know, before that, what we ever did for flashlights. I actually had to carry a flashlight with us, but I use my flashlight on my phone all the time to see things as they truly are. Light shows us the reality around us so we can realize what's going on. You know, to, to realize something means to become fully aware of something as a fact, as truth, as reality, to understand it clearly. There's a few things that we should realize here from these verses, three things we should realize. First, let's realize that we are not the light. John the Baptist knew he wasn't the light. Even when others flocked to him out in the desert and they, they, they wanted to follow him as their master, John said, whoa, whoa, look, I'm not the light. The light's coming. I'm, I'm just the moon that's reflecting the light. I'm just here to witness to the greatness of the light, but I'm not capable in my humanity of generating any light on my own. That's all Jesus. You know, in our educated, sophisticated culture, I know there's many of you who are incredibly accomplished and who have done some amazing things. In, in our area of the world, it's easy for us to think that we have the ability to handle things on our own. We're, we're very intelligent. We can do this ourselves. We're equipped and trained to deal with whatever comes our way, right? But the reality is that we're all in that same sinking boat of sin. We've all been given the same terminal diagnosis of death. And we're all desperately in need of a savior. We can't save ourselves. We can, however, be a witness to the Savior. We can reflect the true light like John the Baptist did. Did you see the moon last night? M Morgan told me, she said, you should check it out. The moon's enormous. And I ran outside in our front yard and I could see the brightness of the moon. It was huge and so bright. I've never seen it so bright. I want to be like that. I'm going to be a big old reflection of Jesus Christ to a world that needs that light, because I can't do it. Only Jesus can. Second thing we should realize, let's realize that the genuine light is only found in Christ alone. I'm old enough to remember those Coke ads. I, I know they started in the 70s. I wasn't around in the 70s, but they continued through the 90s. Remember that, the real thing, that Coke's the real thing? I don't, I don't remember uh, the specific commercials, but I remember it was a pretty effective campaign, apparently, because I, I remember going into a restaurant and my mom would ask, hey, do you have Coke products here? And they'd say, no, we have Pepsi. My mom would say, I want the real thing. <laughs> she didn't say it that meanly, I'm sure. But I, I remember the, the campaign of the real thing, that Coke is the real thing. It's a good campaign because it implies that all other sodas are inferior, that only Coke is the genuine article, and everything else is just an imposter. All the other sodas aspire to be like the real thing, but they're just fake, counterfeit Cokes. They're contenders for the light of the world in our world, aren't there? There's a lot of things that compete to be the true light of the world. There's a lot of imposters, but there's only one real thing. Our hearts are idol factories, as Calvin says. They just crank out all these replacements for Christ constantly with everything from money and success to pleasure or control or status. These things will only prove to be 
counterfeit gods, as Tim Keller calls them. They're incapable of showing us the truth to navigate reality. So finally, the third thing, let's realize this morning the opportunity that's before us and before the world. Verse 12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know, to receive Christ means more than just intellectual agreement, like, oh yeah, here's the facts about Jesus, I agree with those facts. That's not what it's talking about. Receiving Christ means to put all of your trust on him in such a way where you abandon yourself completely, where you die to yourself in order that Christ can live through you, where you lay down all that you are and all that you have at the throne of King Jesus and say, take it all, you are Lord and Master of my heart and my life and my body and all my resources. It sounds scary to some, but I'm convinced it's the best way to live. It's the only way to truly flourish and thrive as God intended for us to. It's like we have a chance from going from being Orphan Annie in Miss Hannigan's Home for Girls or whatever the slum she was living in to becoming adopted by the Warbucks family, to have a loving family who also happens to be incredibly wealthy and lavish their riches on us. The riches of grace offered to us through Christ are more than any mansion you could possibly live in. So will you live into the reality that God is showing you today through the light of Christ? Will you realize that you cannot be the light yourself. The only real light is found in Christ. He's the genuine article. And will you realize the opportunity that's before us, that people have a chance to become God's children by receiving Christ? These are all Advent truths that will change our lives if we'll only allow the light of Christ to illuminate our hearts today and for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you did not leave us in the dark, but you showed up with the true light. You broke into the world that you created, that the Messiah was so much better than what we could have ever asked or imagined because it wasn't just a king, it was you. You put on flesh and, and came into our neighborhood. You dwelt among us. God, you came to rescue us because only you can show us the truth. God, I, I want to know the truth. I want to live in reality. I want to live in the light. I don't want to live a lie. I don't want to be deceived. I know that the evil one, the, the name for Satan means deceiver, God. And I know he wants to deceive us and to trap us in lies that would kill us eventually and destroy us. God, we want to live in truth in the light of Christ. We want to live fully surrendered, receiving Christ as Lord and Master so that we can walk by the only genuine light there is, the light of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would open our hearts more and more to the light of Christ this Advent season. We pray that you would shine in the dark spots of our lives, that you would Act like the sunlight, the disinfectant that cleanses all the places in us that need to be exposed to the light. 
God, I pray that you would bring the, the healing and warmth that the light of Christ gives to those who are in need of healing this Advent season. I pray that you would use us as Woodmont to reflect the light of Christ into a world that is full of darkness. God, even in the midst of a government shutdown and all the political mess that we see in the news and violence and, and immigration and, and war and poverty and injustice, God, we, we long for the light of Christ. We're even more aware of the darkness that we begin this Advent season in, but now as we head towards Christmas Day, help us to show the world that there is light, that there's a God who so loved the world that he sent his only son so that anyone who believes in him, who receives him, who believes in his name as Lord will never perish but have eternal life. I pray that you would let the truth of the gospel shine in our hearts in a whole new way this Advent season. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you've never received Christ, if you've never surrendered to him, and that picture that I painted of laying everything you are down at the feet of Christ, and you say, I need to do that, this is no better time to do it than right now. We're going to have a time of invitation where you can respond by, by coming and talking with me about doing that, praying to, to Christ and saying, I give you everything, receiving that free gift of salvation by grace through faith that, that Jesus offers us to become adopted into his family. Maybe you want to join the family of Woodmont. Maybe you're part of the family of Christ, but you've never joined this family of faith here. Woodmont is a family. We got young, we got old, we got a baby that's supposed to be born today, any time now. We got uh, uh, grandbabies that are being born. It's an exciting time around here. And if you want to be a part of it, then we invite you to come and join Woodmont as a member. Whatever the Lord is, is calling you to do uh, during this time, we ask that you do it. We're going to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful. Let's stand and sing together.